we could talk about the book for a long time, um, and there's a lot of ways we can tackle the book. Um, but, you know, because it is a Bizzlecast, I thought one way to sort of broach it would be, and you've heard this, um, when I, I actually talk about your book during um, what, I, what I thought was one of the sort of the better, more crucial sections of the Taoism podcast. Uh, it was at Bizzlecast 4, um, where I talked my favorite, about- My favorite Bizzlecast. Yeah, mine too. Um, and um, I talk about how in Taoism and some other sort of Eastern philosophies, it's more bottom up in terms of coming from the people, spiritually and religiously, as opposed to Western religions, which are way more top down with hierarchies and stuff, but that our society is also structured this way. And I talked about the difference between top down activism and bottom up activism, and how bottom up activism, which really a lot of our friends are involved with or have been involved with in some way or another um, throughout the years. Um, and is, is I, I think it's sort of implicit to your book. I don't know if you use that term, but um, what, what I really identified with knowing you well is that, you know, you went to a really good college, which is a top-down institution. You worked in the film industry, which is a top-down institution. And then you worked in politics, which is very much a top-down institution. And now you are both approaching your life and career from a bottom-up way and highlighting and working with other people who are also approaching their lives and careers from a bottom-up way. Am I way off on this one? No, you're spot on. I mean, that's, that's totally true. I mean, that's even the philosophy that I kind of talk about in terms of, you know, kind of going around against the career ladder mindset, which I think is just generally the American or Western education mindset which is you kind of, you know, take AP classes, go to a good college, get a good job, move up the ladder, kind of rise up the corporate ladder, get a better title, better salary, all of these things, somehow have a white picket fence and live happily ever after is just complete crap. And, and research so- shows that, right? Research shows there's right. no uh, correlation between money and happiness after $75,000 a year annually. Um, and I actually, I, I, sorry to interrupt, I, I talk about this in an earlier Bizzle, uh, Bizzlecast. I think it was the Baudrillard one where I was talking about living in rural Africa and how that really changed my ideas about, you know, materialism and family and happiness and how, the, you know, the poor families I lived with were the most happy and psychologically well-adjusted people I'd ever met in my life. Yeah. And, and how that's rich pretty... people are so screwed up across the world. And that's pretty groundbreaking. And then, so, you know, so like this idea of the career ladder versus what I talk about in the book is kind of, you know, a pond of lily pads, right? And Mm. if you think about a pond of lily pads, you can go in any different direction. There easily isn't a forwards or a backwards, right? You know, our our entire society is built on, you got to go forwards, you got to make more, you got to rise up, you got to get the better job and the, you know, the bigger car and the buy this, buy that, um, you know, go up, you know, like it's all going up, but like, where are you going? <laughs> what are right. you going to do when you get there? Right. And actually, um, I, I kind of wish I'd play, used... play golf, like go right. on a cruise, like, you know, who cares? You know, the point is to be here now. And that's obviously a very, very Buddhist philosophy, but it's like, who are you now? And who are you surround? What, what is your, what is the meaning of your life now? What are you measuring your life by? Well, I think the lily pad thing is absolutely brilliant. I wish I had worked that in directly to the Taoism podcast, because if you look at just the geometry of how that would work, if you're a frog, you are moving out in a direction, but you're doing it in a circular or spiral kind of way. 
Exactly. And I, I think that's really the difference between Western and Eastern philosophy, or you know, more specifically, between your approach and sort of more traditional approaches, is that you should take the spiral route. It's going to take you longer, but you're going to have more experiences, you have a greater field of experience, and you are eventually going to get somewhere, but you're not going in a straight line. It's not a series of, we're kind of taught, I feel, implicitly in our society, that not only is our life, our life linear, but that when choices are there to be made, there's like two choices. It's like a fork in the road, and you make that choice. And then there's another fork in the road, and you make that choice. Problem with that is, it, you still, no matter how many choices you make, you're still heading essentially in one direction, um, as opposed to covering lots of different directions, meaning that you can make choices that don't have to result um, inevitably from other choices and you know your career path and my career path and a lot of people who you write about and talk about and know career paths and i mean that's sort of what being a millennial is right yeah totally and um you know i love that idea and i think like you mentioned going to africa so a lot of times you know when i speak about the book it's those kind of those it's those experiences um, that really shape what someone wants to do with their life or really shape what some, what, what really matters to someone. It's not the, you know, getting, taking the job that's going to be like the best job for the resume. It's not, you know, doing that. It, it's kind of like those experiences that may seem like, oh, the frog is jumping, like they're going to Botswana, they're going to Argentina, like they're going to work for a nonprofit in India. They're starting their own record company. Right. What are they doing? They're going to a completely different direction. They're jumping sideways. Those are the those are the experiences where you really figure out who you are and what you care about. Yep. So you and and our current kind of career system and our current or Western philosophy in general and Western education system doesn't really support that. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to to support these kind of what seem like it seems like someone's floundering or 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 kind of drifting. But that actually, if it's intentional, you know, I'm not saying you know there's a fine line between intentional exploration. And, and going and, and, and being on vacation or chilling on a beach, right? Well, I'm not saying going and drinking beers on a beach is what you should be doing with right. your life. Um, that's not at all. A lot of people are like, oh, that means you're, you're just wasting time. Like, oh, get your shit together. Like, you know, stop traveling. But it's like if you're traveling and it's, you know, grounded in something meaningful, if you're, you're telling stories or you're working, you know, for a nonprofit or you're, or you're you're learning about poverty or you're working for an organization or you're working for a business in another country, you're very likely having an experience that really is shaping who you are, what you care about, uh, what you want to do next. So, Yeah, in terms of the education system, you know, I often talk about critical thinking and how it's this basic thing that goes back to Socrates, but that just isn't really taught. And, you know, I think there's sort of a subconscious or unspoken reason it's not taught, which is that people don't really want to answer those questions because there's so many dark answers and so many disturbing answers. But the real reason is just that it, it works against, you know, sort of our vision or, or, you know, America or the world vision of modern global capitalism and that critical thinking could really upend a lot of that. And, you know, I think a lot of your book sort of implicitly or explicitly talks about people who made decisions in their lives by, as I always say, examining their own premises and critically thinking about where they are and where they want to be. And so th that, that's just not being uh, communicated, even in a lot of colleges. I mean, I guess for the people you interviewed, 
I mean, would you say most of them, just, just to break it down, and, and it's just a rough estimate, would you say that most of the people you interviewed would have gone to the top, I don't know, 40 or 50 schools in the country? Um, the majority. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, some are dropouts, actually, but, um, but I'd, I'd say the majority. I, I, yeah, I'd say the majority are, are definitely not. Yeah, they're definitely going to like pretty elite schools. What other, um, I guess, kind of common links did you find among the different people you're interviewing? Because we haven't really said it, but we're still not really sure what a millennial is, right? It's sort of it's a useful tool of analysis, and you can sort of roughly estimate the generation or the age. People were tied together in your book by many factors other than just age, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I mean, generally the, the term, I mean, I, I use just for the purposes of demographics is people born in the 80s and 90s, which is generally what people like to, you know, I think that's the, the common New York Times, if you will, <laughs> accepted definition, uh, you know, Gen, Gen X being people born in the, um, you know, 70, 70 through, uh, you know, in the 70s, boomers before that, and of course now Gen Z, people born in the 2000s. You know, for me, I think the common similarities are are, are definitely kind of not, not willing to kind of adhere to the traditional kind of career ladder, people wanting experiences, people wanting to make a difference. So really, actually, like a lot of studies around millennials show that you know, millennials would take a pay cut to find work that matches their values, um, that people want to use their skills for good. So yeah, I, I definitely found that people are looking for kind of so something that tells them to take a different path and helps them figure out that path, right? People are not interested in, it's kind of like, <laughs> go where no man has gone before is, is really could Star be Star like Trek, baby. Shout out. Yeah, it could be, <laughs> could be the slogan for uh, <laughs> the millennial generation. Um, I'm gonna put some you, Star Trek music in the background when I edit this. By the way, yeah, go, ahead, go, yeah. go where no one has gone before, and I think, and I, and I think that that's that's exciting because you know I see that that's why so many young people are interested in entrepreneurship um, and and starting their own thing and and trying and trying all these different things. Of course, the downside of that is that you know sometimes you need to do the research of of who, who's come before you right. and learn from people that are experts in order to really go where no one's gone before right you can't right. just make up everything from scratch and i think you know one the one downside of our generation is that we're so impatient right i i think that you know people especially that have been hooked on social media and been using technology most of their lives it's very hard to tell someone like look this is going to take 2 years or 3 years or 5 years to do because people want change to happen right away so um, one thing that I've learned is that people are really interested in this kind of idea of now. How do I find purpose now? How do I find work that I care about now? Um, and I think that you can start now, but sometimes it takes a little bit more time. And, and you know, so one thing that I've, I've done in, in my work is, um, you know, kind of trying to take this book and turn it into more of like an interactive workshop. Mm -hmm. So doing a lot of speaking around kind of uh, how to build purpose-driven careers, but also kind of how do you find accountability and how do you build a community of supporters that can help you kind of do these things. Because I realized that for me, that was the biggest thing was kind of, you know, changing the changing the people that you're around from people that are kind of like, oh, you can't really write a book. Everyone's already done that before. Like, don't quit your job. It's safe to like people that are super supportive and like say, smiley, keep going or keep writing or keep doing this. You're doing great. Um, I think all of us need those type, type of cheerleaders in our lives. And it might sound kind of corny, but I think it's true. I think who you surround yourself with really matters, you know? 
And that's actually one of the coolest things about our time at Wesleyan, just to take it back for a second, is that we really did have a lot of allies, right? Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, when you started Modiba, the music company, uh, and get it, we're getting it going in Brooklyn, like you had a pretty good community of other musicians and artists and producers that were kind of like had your back, right? Totally. Um, we were lucky in that case, though, because again, working with international musicians, it's such a small market, although it's growing, that we had to have each other's back. Um, yeah. You know, it was like, when you did, um, we, uh, for listeners out there, I haven't really talked about this much, but I founded and ran for a bunch of years, um, co-founded, co-ran with another close friend of mine, uh, Eric Herman, a music company called Modiba, which started out as a production company and label, and we put out some great albums with artists like Via Farcatore, who's a blues rock superstar from Mali. Problem was, while we got great critical reviews and even sold a decent amount um, on tour, the money just was not adding up because it was at that time that the record industry was really sort of going downhill. And so we've moved into music management where we're being a lot more um, successful from a financial standpoint and able to work with more artists. And we're even working with artists whose stuff we put out. And, you know, when we were working in the mid-2000s, you know, up until now, again, because it's, it, it is a growth market, but it's a slow growth market, um, People do, you know, there is competition. People do try and work together to the extent they can. And so, for example, we had a bunch of awesome DJ friends. Smiley knows about this because we would go, we would go dancing in New York, but we went to like, you know, like on the river where they would have drummers and dancers and, you know, costumes and art. And, you know, it was like very sort of alternative, you know, non housey dance scene. Um, musicians and DJs from all over the world. And it was, not even that hard to get some of these DJs to do remixes for us because they were so into the music. So we were very lucky, but I did, especially as we grew, get a sense of the wider music industry out there. And you sort of learn a lot of lessons from that. Um, and uh, uh, so anyways, yeah, sorry, didn't, didn't mean to interrupt you there. I just uh, just wanted to throw that in, but you were talking about how when we, were, uh, we, we had the thing going in, in New York, that was before you had your own projects going, but you know, it, it, in some ways, you're in a better position just because you sort of had the benefit of hindsight before you got your project really going. Yeah, and I, you know, I think um, for me, it's been it's been really exciting because you know I'm I'm doing writing and I and the book has been great, but like you said, you kind of have to figure out where the money is, and the money isn't really in writing; um, it's actually in speaking. Um, at least for authors starting out, you know, obviously, if you're Malcolm Gladwell or you know. Uh, someone like that, you're going to make a lot of money um, from your books. But, you know, you got to build your way up to that. So I think for me, I've realized that, oh, actually, there is a market um, both in doing kind of career workshops and speaking about careers at colleges or grad schools and kind of to, to students or to 20-somethings. That's one market. But then also, you know, speaking about millennials in the workplace, which is a very trending topic mm -hmm. for companies because, you know, in 10 years... 75% of the workforce is going to be, you know, 20 and 35 because right. uh, all the baby boomers, our parents' generation is retiring. It's just the demographic shift that's happening. There's a huge gap there, right? Because mm -hmm. um, all our, most most people that are in the workforce, you know, we're, we're older and they're, they're going to be getting older. And, you know, so this new generation is, is kind of 
coming up with different expectations and the sense of now and the sense of going where no one's gone before, boldly going where no one's gone before. So for me, it's been it's been interesting to kind of, you know, you, you start your work and then you have to kind of shift constantly because you want to do your work creatively, but you also need to make a living and you got to figure that out. And I'm still figuring it out. You know, I've only been you know, on this new path for about, well, living in San Francisco three years, but only really starting with the writing and speaking. Right. Um, I mean, the book came out a year ago, so it's been a year. I mean, maybe two years, if you want to mm-hmm. say, like, some of the other blogging and writing I've done and right. starting the prep for the book and the crowdfunding. But right. let's say, you know, a year to two years, I mean, right. and, I've, and I've had a lot of success in the last year or two, but, you know, in many ways, I consider myself a, a learner and uh, an, an, an amateur and someone kind of just getting going. And, I think, you know, the takeaway there is that you just kind of have to be a learner and explorer. And that's one of the things I talk about a lot in my, in my stuff is that, you know, this, this sense that you're really embracing the lifelong learning journey. And, you know, I think traditionally in Western education, it's like, go to school, go to college, and then you're, you're, you've, you're wise, you, you, you know, everything. No, <laughs> right, right. you learn something, every conversation you have, you right. learn something, every book you read, every experience, every time you travel, every job, every, you know, every, every kind of day is another chance to learn. And the people that I know that seem to find like whatever success means to them, or, or, or I, let's not say it's success. Cause I think that's also a very Western, um, concept of money or, or well, again, or, as or, in, as in with the Taoism podcast, success is fine. As long as you don't get trapped and overly defined by your success. Correct. But let's say more like a, a Zen concept or fulfillment or right or uh, realizing your potential, realizing your potential and kind of having this sense of of contentness and, and meaning around you and the people you surround yourself with. The people that seem to have that. And of course, who knows who really has that? That's very, very personal and very spiritual even. Right. Um, but the scene, the people that seem to seem to, to find that that I, that I know. Right. Um, are so humble and, and are, are so humble in their their sense of learning. Right. They right. consider themselves learners just as much as teachers. Right. And they're willing to kind of try new things. They're willing to become teachers, you know, in their 30s, even though they didn't go to school for teaching. You know, like as you were talking about, because you know you're so good with uh, you know education and philosophy and and kind of uh, and kind of giving advice. That I think it's great that you're kind of making that pivot. Right. Or to go into writing later in life or to just constantly kind of be learning and growing, you know. So I think that that's where it's at. It's all about becoming a lifelong learner. There's no one knows everything and no one knows enough to to stop learning. Um, If anything, I wish it was like, hey, I wish I could like dole out my Wesleyan education for like 10 years because it's like I wish I could take a course now and kind of just be in that environment and, and see what that's like. Um, cause I want to keep learning, you know? So, well, uh, and, and, you know, I think an underrated part of learning is teaching. Um, and I think people miss everyday opportunities to be mentors or teachers in various ways and that you learn just as much teaching as you do, you know, when you're directly learning and you're doing totally. a, lot of, a lot of that and I'm involved with tutoring and I'm trying to become a full-time teacher. I went to grad school, love school, love teaching, love learning. Um, and we'll certainly talk about that. And 
um, as we kind of move into the final section of the podcast here, um, we had so many topics we wanted to get to. And I think, you know, Smiley and I are hoping that um, if people like it and we enjoy doing it, then maybe, you know, once or twice a month or however much we get a chance, we'll, we'll talk about various topics. But I really wanted to introduce Smiley in this one because we want to do podcasts in the future together and may do other projects and have been doing projects formally or informally together now for uh, 15 years, I guess you could say, um, depending on how you want to define a project. So now that you've gotten a sense of Smiley, and I think interestingly, um, this should have been pretty obvious, but I didn't realize until about five seconds ago, which is that I've probably talked more about my own personal life in this podcast than any of my solo ones, and it's not surprising because... You know, that comes out when you talk with friends, especially when it's your best buddy who you've known forever and who knows everything about you, basically. And so thank you for that, Smiley. That's been great. Um, yeah. I, I'd have to listen, but in about seven and a half hours of Bizzlecast, I don't think Modiba ever came up once, even though that was like, you know, one of the most <laughs> crucial extended experiences of my life. Um, but I wanted to wrap up on a little bit of a, of a heady thought, um, or I don't know, maybe it's heady, maybe... Um, it, it's at least interesting, and it has to do with your work and your progression and also mine, which is that um, I think when we were in college, at least, there was a sort of a conflation between notions of radical activism and grassroots activism. And for me, since we graduated, I've really learned to separate that. Um, now, radical activism can be a form of bottom-up activism, but I also believe that there's lots of types of bottom-up activism that don't need to be radical, or in another way, don't need to be anti-authoritarian or you know fully anti-system. There's a difference between wanting to take down the system and change the system. And we you know we knew a lot of people from school and elsewhere who still believe that the system can be fully taken down. And I don't want to put words into your mouth, but we talk a lot. Obviously, I know a lot about you. I know your progression, and you know for sure the top-down approach of working for the government was not for you. But I would argue, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that your book is a very grassroots, very bottom-up approach that's not really anti-authoritarian. And I don't mean that in a bad way at all. Because as you know, as liberal as I am, I still do think at least some change in our society needs to happen from within the system, and some from without, but also some within. And you're not telling these people, you know, to... to, to to drop everything they're doing and pick up their pitchforks, you know? I mean, you talk about being productive and realizing potential, that happens within society. But you're a very liberal guy, politically and socially, and you're very sensitive to these issues. Do you ever find yourself um, just sort of an internal conflict between wanting to reach a lot of people and speak to the masses, but also not compromise your sort of overall, you know, political or ideological vision? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I definitely consider myself much more of the bottom up, as you say. Um, but I think especially when it comes to like the political changes and social changes and, um, you know, that we're trying, you know, starting to see with kind of uh, race relations in the United States and, and all of the protests, you know, some of that stuff is so systematic, right? The prison system, police system, like these are things right. that like you can write articles about, but like until those systems change, people are going to be getting locked up, right? People, there's going to be police brutality until like the crime rates change, until like the 
until the police department doesn't isn't like told put this many people per month in prison so that right. we can make money because the prison is a you know is a is a corporation and is making profit people are going to be still getting locked up so you can write about it all you want and protest about it all you want but that needs to change from a systematic level exactly um so i i think that it, it but it's a combination because also you know i i was just reading an article recently about you know, kind of like this new, this new, um, movement of like young, uh, blacks, uh, civil rights leaders and kind of like a news and, and through social media, it was like, uh, it was in New York times magazine cover story all about, you know, how these kind of, uh, folks out of the Ferguson movements had kind of become like the leaders of, or there are no leaders, but like kind of very like vocal folks, fo faces on Twitter, voices on Twitter, I should say. Um, with protests and kind of using that tool to like get a kind of get awareness out. So I think that there's, which is really exciting to me because, you know, kind of using new technology and social media and kind of some of the stuff that's in my book about like, you know, carving your own path and getting your word out there and building your audience, even when society's not listening to you, there's, there's so much potential there, right. but it's always a mix, right? It's always going to be, you know, you, you need both. You need this is the sad thing is when I left DC, part of me was like, people like me need to be here, right? right? right. People like that went exactly. that we went to school with and people that are, you know, I don't mean to just like, Obama you know, maybe doesn't like, get elected if you don't work there. I mean, I mean, not just you, but not, yeah, exactly. You but take that a few movement, people out of there, then everything's yeah, different. That, that movement of people or, you know, like, you know, if all of us move to San Francisco and start, you know, just eating kale all the time, right. um, you know, the world's going to get worse. <laughs> right. You know, if, if people don't become teachers because they think the school system is corrupt, like then, the, then, then teach then kids are going to not learn about climate change. They're not going to learn about slavery. They're not going to learn about the civil rights movement. They're not going to learn about Taoism and how many, and, and what really matters in life because, you know, they're just going to have, have really unenlightened teachers. So, we need good people. We need smart people in, in all these walks of life. Um, but you have to figure out what's right for you. So you have to figure out where you belong and where you can add the most value, right? Yeah. But I think, you know, I try to, I try to reach a wide audience, but I'm definitely, you know, I'm, I'm always going to be on the, the, the side of like, you know, pro-social change, pro-kind of uh, increasing equality, uh, increasing opportunity for more people, you know, that's why I try to really ground my message of kind of career stuff in purpose and meaning. And, um, you know, I kind of take like basically like doing something for others. That doesn't mean like you have to go work in a village somewhere or help people that are starving. I'm not saying that, but it's about, it's about the sense of kind of service right. or helping others or just making the world a better place. Right. I don't care really what people do in terms of whether it's environment or poverty or, or music or art or, or baking pizza or whatever it is, as long as you're pushing society in a better direction, right. making people uh, feel better, spreading love, spreading equality, um, you know, making, teaching people, you know, uh, if you, as long as you're moving the needle forward, <laughs> um, that's, that's kind of what matters, right? I, I, but I well, think sometimes... You know, I think I think sometimes people are like do whatever, and it's kind of like yeah, yes, and you know, like right. sometimes people like uh, do whatever. Well, if you're just gonna sit there in the sun all day, or like 
Right. I, I think there has to be some acknowledgement that there are other people out there and that other people need your help, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, and just to sort of bring it back around to Wesleyan or just, you know, just people who are very left-wing in general, um, you know, when you go to a liberal arts school, um, there are, you know, very liberal artsy academic lingo that, you know, people start adopting. Obviously problematic it was probably the most... Um, common one, and now everyone uses problematic, but that was always the way in class for someone to sound smart, right, was to use the word problematic. Um, I talked about reification in some of my other podcasts as well as one of those terms. But another one is transgressive. Um, and the notion of transgressive is that you are, are pushing at or trying to push through certain boundaries. problem is I find that a lot of what I would call, you know, like super hyper activists, they think you have, uh, being transgressive means removing yourself from the mainstream and system as much as possible. But really all you're doing is removing yourself and, and not really contribute anything. In fact, by definition, in order to be transgressive, and just to explain it really quickly, transgressive is a term that postmodern and post-structuralist thinkers and writers talk about a lot specifically in the sense of acknowledging that as radical as your politics are, some of this change has to come through the system. And so in order to address that, you need to act in ways that are transgressive, where you're in the system, but you're pushing the boundaries of where the system is. And I think, I won't go on too much of a rant here, um, but you know, I think one of the things that really bothered me about some of the activism in college, and continues to bother me, even just looking at Facebook, is that is the clean hands theory. And you probably know what I mean by that, Smiles, but I'll just explain it really quick, which is that, you know, some people decide that, you know, they're so repulsed by the world that they would rather just keep their hands completely clean, even if it means that their tiny little causes that they're doing aren't really accomplishing anything, um, as opposed to accepting the fact that it's, we're all in the system anyways. None of us have clean hands just because of the consumerist lives we're living, right? I mean, you couldn't even get out of that even if you wanted to. And so, um, it, obviously, you don't want to get your hands too dirty, but the idea being with activism, being transgressive, is that you got to get your hands a little dirty, which doesn't mean people have to get hurt or suffer. It just means that, you know, there might be some unintended consequences, but somehow, you know, envisioning yourself outside of the system as not having consequences, as you pointed out with the example of, you know, moving to the middle of nowhere or whatever, that also has consequences. And so, um, you know, when it comes to left-wing activism, which I'm generally very in support of, although I would really call myself a progressive more than a leftist at this point, um, but um, whatever you want to call it, um, there is this sort of tension between I... I I think, you know, sort of my and your a little bit more practical approaches versus just um, very um, outside the lines approaches, which can be important. And I pointed out, like, revolutions may start happening at some point in the near future because of this global economic situation. But at the very least, we need to have smart, competent people in the system trying to change from within. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think there are a lot of people that have been waiting a long time for you know, some parts of the system to change and, and yeah. they haven't. Yeah. So it can be quite, that can be quite, uh, you know, uh, really awful for some yeah, people. Yeah, but well, hold on. Let me just jump in on that really quickly, though. 
But let's just take Baltimore, right, for example. The riots in Baltimore, which was, was that last week or two weeks ago? Um, mm-hmm. And the big problem, of course, wasn't just the burning down and stuff. It was the media coverage, right? which was that the media was covering the, you know, the areas that were getting burnt down and not the majority of people who were peacefully protesting and who continued to peacefully protest. And what's crazy is even when there were peaceful protests going on a few days after the riots stopped, I'd be sitting in a bar and there'd be some, you know, like, like Philadelphia, you know, like, you know, right wing Philadelphia, white trash or whatever, like being not just totally racist, but essentially saying that they're the same as the people who are burning down the buildings. And yeah. so, you know, if we had more people in positions of power, like, let's say, an executive producer at CNN, for example, right. um, you know, I mean, if you just have some well-placed people, that whole narrative can change. Yeah. Um, and, um, but the problem is, you, you know, it's, they always say, you know, the best people for, to be president would never want to be president. And that's why they would be the best to be president, right? That's like the, uh, you know, the old, uh, the, you know, the old kind of saying or, or, or traditional wisdom there. And it's the same thing with corporations. The best people to be CEOs aren't necessarily the type of people who want to be CEOs. Sure, um, exactly. And so you're sort of stuck in that conundrum. But I think with your approach in both your book and your talks and, and other things you're writing and the camps and, and conferences that you run is to try and strike a balance there that you can and should be a professional person with career objectives, but that it doesn't need to define you or limit you and that you can create change from within. And for me, that's what's really one of the things that's very attractive about your, your book and your work. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, and I like, yeah, that, thanks for saying that. And I think like, you know, the point that you made about, um, you have to get your hands dirty. I mean, you have to, have you to. have to piss people off. And have I have to piss people one of, off. One of the things that I think a lot of people, you know, uh, ask me about with the writing is like, I, I think every time I wrote, I think the best writing, it like polarizes, right? Um, the best yeah. work does the best, the, all of the best uh, art, work of arts or, or even works of leadership polarize. Like you're going to piss some people off. And there's this culture on Facebook, and we can get into Facebook at another time because there's a lot to say. Because um, I think in general, Facebook is making us depressed and stupider um, and bringing us. I mean, I think. Uh, I, I think don't think it's I, making us stupider. Not I, stupid, I do think but that, I, we're, it's definitely it, making us less focused um, yes, and less productive. That's true. Um, and, and, but it's also an incredible tool. And, you know, it's helped me kind of share my work and, and build my audience. But what I think is damaging is like I see what, pe- what people try to do on Facebook is like prove that they know something or that they're aware of something or that they're, a, uh, you know, on a certain team or have a certain philosophy. And it's like, who, who, who are you? What are we proving here? You know, like, well, what and this is, is this a great is- arbiter of like, of politics or the great arbiter of GMOs or the great arbiter of, uh, you know, quotes or who, 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 who are we trying to impress here? And I find, you know, like I, I just, it's just like, there's, there's no end to it. And it's kind of like, uh, what's the point? And I think the point is to do something that matters. And if you do something that matters, some people are going to be infuriated by it. And some people are going to think it's amazing and and you're going to change some people's lives. So well, and, I, and, and I, I, just even the way you phrase that, but what you're saying, that's exactly why I felt compelled to do the Joss Whedon podcast, because 
there was a very small scene in the movie. I won't rehash it. You guys can listen to Bizzlecast uh, episode 5.0, which where I defend Joss Whedon and, and um, the new Avengers movie. There's a scene with Scarlett Johansson and Mark Ruffalo where it seems that Scarlett may be implying that since she's been sterilized, she's somehow some sort of monster. When really she's saying she's been a monster as an assassin and she's trying to relate to the Hulk, for God's sakes, who's like the ultimate monster. So she probably oversells it. And then this led on you know Jezebel and all of these feminist so-called feminist sites to crush Joss Whedon based on essentially a two-minute conversation that had almost nothing to do with the movie and who anyone who knows Joss Whedon stuff is ridiculous he's like an incredible uber feminist um, as mainstream directors go but the point being the whole reason I got I had to do it or felt I did was because people were posting these articles and I'm like First of all, I don't think you've even seen the movie. You probably don't even care about Marvel stuff, so why don't you just shut up? But secondly, what are you really fighting for? And that's what I, I get to, you know, that's probably the angriest I've ever been in a podcast. And I, where I'm, I, I say basically what you say, and, you know, forget the exact issue, but examine what you're really fighting for here. If you want to make a career choice based around a single issue, then go for it. But if you want to be a well-rounded, well-informed progressive, in my opinion, you have to take a wider view of reality. But that's just me. And that if you're going to take a radical position on something, you better make damn well sure that you're picking the right thing to take a radical position on in terms of its importance and relevance. Yeah, I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know the scene. But you know, I think I think now it's like um, there was an article recently about like this whole like public shaming online. And so what's happening, it's so easy to shame someone. So it's so easy for us, like, uh, and this happens on the left and the right. So you pick the sound clip happens, right? The, someone says something that's missed, you know, they, they, they say the thing that offends women. They say the thing that offends uh, black people or they say the thing that offends um, who, whoever. And it gets blasted everywhere and it just becomes like this thing. Right. And it's like, that that is the instance rather than going to the root of the social issue or the policy or the actual you know it's it, that that thing's so easy for people to press like on or press share on or to get like you know it's like it's this firestorm and it's like I'm not sure it's making humanity better it's, um, it's just too easy to post an article without reading it too you know or the headline is quick and it's like yeah. I, i'm in favor of this like i want to show you that i'm i'm i do the, i'm guilty of this stuff too of course well you know uh, i mean i it, but it's, it's like I, I i'm not sure that it's really pushing i'm not sure it's moving the needle forward no um you well, know I, although i do think it's important to share your ideas but like you know for instance i would rather everyone like articulate um you know, write a blog post about how they feel about something or like write an art post about potential solutions for like, we're going to get on Josh Whedon about some scene in a movie. Like, why don't we talk about like equal pay for equal work? Or right. why don't we talk about like more women having a, uh, you know, maternity leave compared to like European countries. Right. Cause like most companies in the U S give women like a month off, which is bullshit. So it's like, why don't we talk about real stuff rather than like, going on and on of like, I'm going to prove I'm a feminist because of the scene in the movie. That's like, oh, come on. Like, that doesn't make yeah. any sense. But that's easy for society to do. It takes very little effort. Right. Whereas like actually figuring out how we could change real society and real programs 
or, or start a new business that does that or start a new organization that does that. It's like, actually, that would require more work, more research. Yeah. I probably have to spend a weekend doing that, maybe yeah. a week, maybe a year. I'm not yeah. going to do that. I'll just post this article on Facebook. Yeah. Well, and that's why, and uh, I'll use this as, um, as a lead into, a, into the wrap-up and for the tease for, for um, uh, uh, what will be the next step here. But just what you were saying about Facebook, people get on me. They're like, why do you keep posting articles about, you know, Marvel and Star Wars and um, sports. And I'm like, you know what? My response is, how many reposts of a Huff Post article do there need to be? You know, like I literally have 1,200 friends posting political articles all day. Like I yeah. get enough of that, and everyone's getting enough of that. Um, and you know, I, again, I, you got you can listen to past Biddlecast, but. There's more going on sometimes in, in mainstream that is transgressive that's not being acknowledged. And I'm always trying to get people, if they, even if they don't like comic book movies, this will be my one plug here, <laughs> is to see Captain America the Winter Soldier last year. Where in the end, for real, he is Edward Snowden. Like literally, like he and, and Scarlet together in, download the entire intelligence apparatus onto the internet because of how corrupt it is. And yet, because he's named Captain America and because of how it's framed and the narrative and the story, we're behind him. But if you just switched it out with Edward Snowden, people would have a totally different reaction, but it's exactly the same thing. Actually, what Cap did was actually more radical because Edward Snowden leaked some secrets. Cap actually leaked all of the secrets. So, you know, there's a lot of, of, of uh, stuff pretending to be transgressive, which is not... And then there's lots of stuff that looks like there's no way it could be transgressive that is. Um, and, and as you said, and as we've been talking about, people need to sort of examine what they're really fighting for here.